Are you in a rut? Stressed by the demands of your personal, professional, and social lives? Join lifestyle guru Pauline Brown right now for Tastemakers. That's really where people can really make the celebrated individual the centerpiece. She invites her friends to share tips of the trade and new ideas for bringing out the best in you. My real passion is style, and not just style, but design, beauty, all things aesthetic. Turn the mundane into the memorable with Pauline Brown on Tastemakers. Hello, welcome back to Tastemakers. I'm your host, Pauline Brown. We are closing off the year on a tradition that I started my first year of uh, hosting Tastemakers at SiriusXM, and that is to talk about the world of champagne. Um, I bet a factoid that most of you didn't know, I actually didn't know until I looked it up. Every year on New Year's Eve, 360 million glasses of champagne are consumed. That's a lot. Um, and I'm assuming it's not by one person, but if it was one person, it'd be me. Um, and um, there is so much to learn. I have gone um, with our guest today on quite a few tastings and on his training sessions. And every time I pick up some new and interesting insights about this fascinating spirit known as champagne. So I'm welcoming back on the show a, a longtime friend, a former colleague of mine. His name is Seth Box. Uh, Seth, it's great to see you again. See you too, Pauline. And uh, as is always the case these days, I have my uh, my sidekick, my my partner, Paula Oriel, who is um, participating from uh, from her home base in Europe. Good to see you, Paula. Hi, Pauline. Good to see you too, and Seth. So, a few things about Seth. Um, if you missed him several years back when he was on the show, um, he, in my opinion, is. Uh, maybe even the world's preeminent connoisseur, not just on champagne, but really on all areas of fine wine. Uh, he currently works as the private client director for Moet Hennessy. He's been in that role since uh, 2014. Moet Hennessy is uh, a division of LVMH, where I formerly worked. Uh, as part of that role, he's responsible for uh, corporate and private client businesses um, and focuses on the Western half of the US. His, um, his other partner in crime, Richie Petrino, who's been on the show several times, focuses on the other half of the country. Uh, so um, another, a few other things you should know about Seth, because uh, he didn't just spend his uh, career working with private clients and collectors and so forth. Uh, he actually um, has lived in quite a few of the wine regions of the world. He um, lived in Napa Valley, uh, and he actually started out earlier in his career in, um, in Italy. Uh, he also, uh, believe it or not, probably one of the few Americans I know who, who did a stint all the way in New Zealand, uh, working in the Marlboro district, which is actually one of my favorites. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc from Marlboro is a favorite of mine. Um, he holds a degree. This is a really sharp guy, a degree in international relations and economics. He speaks Italian. He uh, has been quoted in many publications and articles about different wines and spirits, um, and he's uh, currently serving as a judge for the International Wine and Spirits Competition. So uh, with all that, let's start before we even get into champagne. Uh, what drew you into the industry? Food, actually. Food? First, yeah. I, I started to really get into food as a teenager, and this was way before Top Chef or all the really the explosion of all the famous chefs that you see now really is a global phenomenon. And I had a sense of how hard it was to be a chef because I had friends who were in kitchens. 
And so the, the glamour factor wasn't there for me. I knew how hard it was. I knew it was six, seven days a week on your feet, 12, 14 hours a day, but I, I still loved it. And I, I angled around food through wine. Um, mm-hmm. that, I was just really lucky because mm-hmm. I'm enough to where when I got into it, I could afford to, I could afford to really put sweat equity into it, you know, and work mm. at and, and work at jobs that didn't necessarily pay great, but where the experience was phenomenal. So my love of food was first. And then I, I fell in love with wine through food and kept that up uh, all the way till today. So one of the things that Pella and I talk about a lot in our aesthetic intelligence labs is the fact that um, people, many people are born with gifts, but they won't actually become experts unless they really cultivate their gifts, right? Do you think before you even became such a connoisseur of wine that you had a particular gift for sort of flavors and fragrances and all the things that go into being as discriminating as you are now? I don't know if it's a, I don't know if I was gifted or not. I think a lot of it's practice, um, obviously, but I really think for most people, and I try and encourage this when you're, when we're tasting wines or spirits or whatever else, is just to take a second to pay attention to it. And I know mm-hmm. it's really simple, but you know, think of champagne like as a toast. We're thinking about the moment, we're thinking about who we're with and all that's amazing. But if you have something potentially really interesting in a glass in front of you, just give it five seconds, give it 10 seconds if you can, and think about what's going on in that glass. And I've, mm-hmm. I think really that'll either grab you or it won't. And it grabbed me very, very early on. And being able to look into something that I know won't lie to me. And by that, I mean, fine wine can have a bunch of marketing and it can have all these other aspects to it and can have famous brands and labels, but it has to stand up in the glass. Mm-hmm. It has to be amazing. It has to be seamless. And unlike other luxury items, if you drink it, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't have the bag in your, in your closet the next day. You don't get to wear the shoes. It's and so that temporal piece of it really is ephemeral to me. Now, one thing we, we all know, and you've, you've uh, told, you know, trained me to do this over the years, is before you actually consume the wine or the champagne is to take in the aroma, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, our noses are very connected to our taste buds. You've also, though, talked quite a bit about visual um, obviously, in the case of champagne, it's very exciting because you've got movement, you've got those bubbles, and you've got, you know, often a very pretty sort of, you know, golden or or rosé tint to it. But would you say the same for even uh, Cabernet? Do you do you actually spend the time to look at it as well as smell it before you taste it? Or is that that's a particular? really good question? Um, because there are different schools of thought on analysis of wine like this. So this is a little bit nerdy. Um, and if you look at master psalms or masters of wine, how they address that often, particularly the psalms, the visual is the first thing that they're expected to address mm-hmm. uh, for their examination, as well as in their professional life. For me, it's more of a practicality. Like it can tell you if it's really old. It can tell you if it's got sediment, if it's been filtered or not filtered. But overall, generally speaking, when you're not looking at something movement, and I like the way you described bubbles as being you know, something visually beautiful to look at. For the remainder, I don't use it as much of a, as an indicator of what's going to be in the glass. I really trust my nose and my palate ahead of things. It mm-hmm. looks viscosity, like when people spin their glass, um, mm-hmm. we'll call that tears or legs as it runs down the glass. That really is only going to tell you um, if it's got a lot of alcohol in it and if it's got sugar in it. 
because it'll run at a different pace if it's got more or less alcohol or if it's got more or less sugar in it, which, again, you know, you're going to put this in your mouth soon. So you might as well get down to that and not spend as much time looking at it. So let's talk about champagne. Um, I, I mentioned uh, one of the reasons I keep coming back to this theme as my final topic of the year is it's so deeply associated particularly here in the States with the holidays and even more specifically with New Year's Eve. In fact, I read that 25% of all champagne consumed happens between Christmas and New Year's. That's one week. So that's essentially 2% of the year is 25% of total consumption. Why do you think that tradition took hold? I can't think of another category that's so disproportionate toward that one week. No, it's, and it's, it's tough on business. Um, particularly this year because, um, we're in the opposite problem of, of some years past where, you know, you're trying to make your number, you're trying to sell. And this year, we're trying to keep it on the shelf. We're trying mm-hmm. to keep places stopped. But to your question about why it's it's so celebratory, it started out that way. Um, we, we had a chance to speak last week about this just a little bit. And I thought it was a, a fun thread to follow up on because I hadn't really been at that thought before. But the Champagne region has done a, a brilliant job marketing itself with kings, nobility, royal courts, the rich and famous, the glamorous for three or four, probably upward of 400 years since the time of Dom Perignon when he was sending his champagne to the royal courts of, of uh, Versailles at the time. And so when there's one occasion that we all share as a, as a people, like where your religious views are, whatever, whatever your perspective is on life and the end of the year and the holidays, we all go from 2021 to 2022, whether we want to or not. Mm-hmm. At that moment, if there's going to be a beverage that's that's going to bring everybody together at that moment, it makes sense that it's champagne because they've been that for centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know, I remember from my um, very superficial history uh, course at, at LVMH that because uh, champagne is, you know, is the heart of France where all the kings throughout history had their coronation Mm -hmm. and the royalty from the rest of Europe, whether it was the Russian czars or the earls from Britain all kind of converged in Champagne to celebrate this coronation, that that became sort of a marker of a milestone, a new era. Um, And it's so pretty to look at as well. I mean, the bubbles seem to go very well with the rest of the tinsel and the, the kind of celebratory things that are going on. So it's the only drink that I know that can change the mood in a room just by the sound that it makes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's actually talk about the sound. And this is another thing that Paula um, and Paula, feel free to jump in if you have some questions as well. But but we talk a lot about the kind of integration of different senses to create experiences, whether we're aware of them or not. So, for example, when you hear a pop of a champagne cork, it's such a distinct sound you know, the only thing I could compare it to in the world of food and beverage is maybe when you open like a, a soda can, right? And there's like a very distinct, like the fizzy is coming out in that moment. The difference between the soda, the, the soda can is still tin, and this is sort of a cork against glass. And so it has a richer, uh, you know, a bit more thunderous sound. But talk to me about, um, you know, about the sort of the sensation. And, and also the other thing that very few people know is actually how you uncork a bottle of champagne properly but let's yeah, start with, yeah, yeah because could is the technology there that if the champagne producers didn't want to have to deal with corks anymore and save a couple of eyeballs that they could or do you think the fact that it's still there is it's still the best way to enclose that that bubbly 
sparkly stuff. My personal opinion is that cork is necessary for champagne um, from a production standpoint, but also from an image standpoint. I don't think that we're ever going to see it transition away from cork. It just doesn't make any sense. When you pull cork out too, you'll notice that there are different layers of cork. So the one that comes in contact with the champagne is a really high quality and that's the highest quality we can buy. So that way we assure that what is coming into contact with the liquid is the very best cork out there. Um, and Paul is actually coming to us from Portugal, which is where along with Spain and parts of North Africa, almost the entire world supply of cork comes from. Mm. It's a really tricky business because you're basically doing it for your grandkids, or your great grandkids. Those trees take 50 years, 45 to 50 years to produce one harvest. And then they peel the bark off the tree and it's upwards of eight to 10 years, if memory serves, before they can get another harvest off of it. Hmm. It's, a, it's a very tricky and a very unique business that you don't see duplicated. But um, to the sound, you're right, opening a can of Schlitz or Coors Light does <laughs> not change the mood the way that that resounds <laughs> off of a bottle of champagne does. And there's, there are two different thoughts on that. One is to let it rip and just have a good time. And the other is more of the service-oriented piece where you're not supposed to. So if you're trained as a, as a sommelier, you're trained to not make that sound. Like they would mm. do in an exam if you let it pop. And I think that that's a mistake because you're, you're removing that richness of sound. You're removing that piece of celebration. You're removing that, that wonder when people turn around and look and say, what's going on over there? That's so cool. Mm doing something amazing and you, you take that away I, I get from a service standpoint why you do it you don't want to spill <laughs> pain everywhere but you know fundamentally if you hold the bottle at an angle all champagne comes with a cage on top of it so it's safe until you take that off you six twists I just loosen the cage on the bottom and always keep my hand and thumb on the top so it doesn't pop out and then just twist gently holding the bottle at a 45 degree angle wiggling your hand um, and it'll pop out and you can get a nice bit of noise and then it gets caught in your hand and everybody's happy. And the reason why you hold it at an angle is because you don't want to spill it. If you hold it, mm. you do it really calmly, you're still going to get a little bit of volcano action, even if nobody shook your bottle up. And always so, make sure it's relatively chilled because if it's not, that'll also make a mess. Yeah. So for my final question before we break is um, <clears throat> there are people who love opening a bottle and having it kind of fly, you know, a hundred feet in one direction, especially at the end of a, I don't know, a car race or something. But if you want to avoid the spillage, you know, my, and, and tell me if, if my science is really backwards here, but my sense is some of it has to do with the, the shaking that if, if you're more gentle on the bottle, oh, yeah. the hours and days that right there, you can sort of uh, reduce the prospects of, of that big splash. Uh, what else though, the, the, the angle, uh, the, the condition of the bottle, anything else to- uh, it's, basically, it's basically three things. Don't shake it, like you said, just keep put in the fridge the night before, put in a nice bucket for 30 or 40 minutes. Don't let anybody jostle the bottle. Make sure it's at a decent temperature. So somewhere between, some people like it colder. It's so like 48 degrees to 55, 60 degrees if it's a nicer champagne. Hold it at an angle when you pop it. Sabering is a really cool way to do it too. Um, that's where you, something you take, it basically looks like a butcher knife, but it's not sharp. And you run it along the side of the bottle and it takes the top off and that's all very, very festive, but you do have to be careful with that and it takes some practice. So just mm -hmm. bottles, make sure it's not jostled, it's relatively cool, and that you hold it at an angle when you open it up and it should be just fine. And you can still okay. make it a mess. Well, cheers to that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, we're going to um, get more into the history of these champagne houses and what makes something champagne versus just plain old sparkling wine. 
And, um, and a couple more facts that uh, you may never have known or thought about. So stay with us. We're uh, talking all things champagne with Seth Box of Moet Hennessy. Now, more with Pauline Brown on Tastemakers on Sirius XM Stars. Hello, welcome back to Tastemakers. I'm here this hour with Seth Box of Moet Hennessy. He is a, uh, an expert and an educator in all things wine, but today we're talking um, primarily about champagne. I'm also here with my partner at Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, Paola Oriel. Uh, right before we went to the break, we were talking about the right way to uh, is it uncork. Do you call it uncork? Is that the verb? Uh, a bottle of champagne. And I know, Paola, you had a question. I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, yes, Seth. So I wanted to uh, ask you, there's this saying that whenever you want to get someone drunk, you will pour champagne, champagne first to them. Can you, is this, is this true? Is this a rumor? Why do you get drunk faster if you, you're the first one to drink? A really good question. And I, when I was the education director of the company, I answered it incorrectly for years. So <laughs> I, I'm glad I'm given another opportunity to set it straight. As it turns out, uh, if you're drinking a carbonated beverage, which champagne is, the alcohol gets delivered into your bloodstream quicker. So even though champagne's only 12, 12 and a half percent alcohol, it will hit your system quicker than a glass of still wine that has the exact same amount of alcohol in it. Um, and that's true of all carbonated alcoholic beverages out there. So it actually, it's, it legitimately gets in there and affects your system quicker than other drinks. So what about, but what about the idea of the first, the first glass? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I've heard this as well, that the first glass will get you more drunk than the second glass. And ah. everyone successively is, gets a bit less, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, alcoholic intense or something. Yeah, I think it's, there's probably some truth to that because your body then absorbs the alcohol, right? So it enters your bloodstream, but it hits you. That first glass will hit you quicker. By the time you have a second, your body has started to recalibrate. It said, okay, we're drinking, we've got this fizzy alcohol in us, and, and the second glass isn't going to be nearly as um, impactful, if you will, in that regard as the, as the first. That's, that makes sense. So talk to, talk to us how champagne is made, because I know the process is not quite the same as how, for example, Prosecco is made, which you know many people think of as the Italian version of champagne, but there are some pretty critical differences. Huge, yeah, start with where it is. So Prosecco is from the Valdobbiadene region in Northeastern Italy. It's grown all around there, but that's, that's kind of the center of it. It's one grape, which is Glera, and you don't see a lot of still wine made out of Glera, which I think is kind of interesting. And they make it in a tank, in a big stainless steel tank. That's where it lives its entire life. They carbonate it um, in that tank. It's really quick. Um, you can kind of make, at the, at the base end, you can make it, it's like making wine on tap. Um, and it's good, you know, it's, it's fun, it's fizzy, it's festive, it's affordable. It's a little sweeter typically. Um, champagne, which is where the process that all of the best sparkling wine houses still follow to this day, whether it's in Napa or New Zealand or Tasmania or Australia, it doesn't matter. The Champenois really perfected this process. Um, other parts of France do it, but the Champagne folks do it the best. And that's just a lot of trial and error, you know, over time, because it was not supposed to be fizzy. That was an accident at the beginning. But as early as the 1700s, you saw houses like Ruinart say, okay, we can do this on purpose. Glass started to come into it, but let me back up a little bit. So the region is Champagne. It can only be Champagne if it's from the Champagne region in France. Um, outside, northeast of um, Paris, 
it's at the very end of the grape growing universe for the Northern hemisphere. Uh, we can't ripen grapes past the 50th parallel and Champagne's at 49 and a half. So you, you're dealing with a certain spot that has its soil, its terroir, the amount of rain it gets, all of this is gonna contribute to the wine. Then it's the grapes. And in Champagne, the grapes that we're dealing with are Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Meunier, uh, almost in thirds equally. And Pinot Noir in particular is a really challenging grape to grow anywhere in the world. And the climate up there being as marginal as it is makes it even more challenging. So what we'll do, and I'll just take, I don't, Clicquot because I'm, you and I are looking at each other and I see your giant bottle of Clicquot in the background. So. Clicquot, if you're making that, then what you'll do is take all three grape varieties and you'll press them off their skins and you'll ferment it just like you would make wine anywhere in the world. And what this does is if you've got Pinot Noir and Meunier, which are dark grapes, it doesn't pick up any of that color because you're not making a wine that's a rosé. So now I've got Pinot Noir, I've got Meunier, and I've got Chardonnay. And I literally have hundreds of these made from different vineyards all over Champagne. I'll sit with a winemaking team, Clicquot's is rather good sized as you'd imagine, and they're gonna sit and parse through this and they're gonna taste this wine that's not even close to finished. It's super acidic, really tart, very, very hard to, in my opinion, very hard to see the future of where this is gonna be. Um, and they have the, the gift of being able to, with experience, look at these and know how to put them together and then if you're making non-vintage champagne, which means it doesn't carry a specific vintage date on it, which is 90% of the category, then you go back a year or two or three or four or five or 10, as many as you want, and you can blend different wines in in order to assure that your house style stays consistent and that your quality remains very high. Once that decision has been made, they're going to put it in the bottle that we're going to drink it out of. This is why it's heavy. A lot of people think champagne bottles are heavy because it's a marketing ploy Big bottles mean big money. That's not the case. It has to withstand the second fermentation in the bottle. So that's why they're as dense as they are. So we'll put that wine in there, add a little bit of yeast and sugar, put a plastic bidule, which is a hollow cap in there, and a, a crown cap, which is basically a really strong beer cap on top. And now what happened in those tanks for first fermentation and what happens in wines all over the world that are still happens again in each individual bottle that we're going to drink out of. But the primary difference is that that cap on the end keeps the carbon dioxide in, which is a natural byproduct of a fermentation, and that creates bubbles. And the longer it ages in this stasis, the smaller and finer those bubbles become. Mm -hmm. So brick bubbles or caviar bubbles are terms that are used sometimes for something that's been aged upwards of 10 years like this. And the benefit you get is when that yeast is done with its sugar, it perishes and falls to the bottom of the bottle. That actually gives character to the wine as well. So when people talk about brioche, biscuity, um, some of the nuance that comes in champagne, it's from aging at least three years typically on the yeast to get some of that flavor. And the longer it's there, the more nuance it, it picks up. So it's very different. And like I said, mm -hmm. once, once you've got that done, it's just your decision as a winemaker for how long you want to let it age. Mm -hmm. and what, quality you're making then they'll madame clicquot just going back to your bottle uh she invented a process to get the yeast out of there called riddling so they used to do it by hand where they would put the bottles in a, in a rack and slowly twist and turn the bottle upward eventually getting all that yeast down into the tip so they could remove it we do that mechanically it's the same basic process we can just mm -hmm. do it faster and more efficiently now and then mm -hmm. the top pop it off add a little bit of dosage. So when people see Brut, which is the majority of all the champagne made, what we're telling you by law is this is how much sugar we're putting in this bottle. It is not to exceed a certain amount. 
and it's a teeny amount. Most houses are going to put somewhere between five and 12 grams per liter. So it's nothing. It's, it's really, if you think of a can of Coke has 40 grams of sugar in it mm-hmm. per liter. It's not per three quarters of a liter, which is the size of a normal bottle. Uh, and it's really just to soften the acidity, particularly in younger champagne. So the longer it ages, the less of that dosage is required because it's mellowed out and integrated a little bit more. Mm. And that's it. it. It is interesting. I mean, your, your point earlier that 90% of champagne sold is non-vintage, you know, there are collectors out there, but it's a fraction, you know, mm-hmm. as, as compared to the uh, world of collectors of Cabernets and so forth. Oh yeah. Most champagnes really don't get better. They don't accrue more value over time, unlike fine wine. Why is that? Yeah. So the, the base of that pyramid, that 90%, they'll take anywhere between two and say four or five years to make. Now there are some exceptions like Krug, which is a prestige cuvee that is also Mm -hmm. multi-vintage. That's an exception typically. Uh, Most of the very, very high-end champagnes are vintage champagnes like Dom Perignon. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what they've done is said, okay, we've got this ready for you guys. And if you think about it from a business standpoint, why would I want to make something that I sell to you and say, don't drink this for 20 years? It's a, it's a bad model. I want you to go home, drink it, have a good time, go back to the shop and rinse and repeat. Um, and non-vintage champagne does that beautifully while still delivering a really high quality level. So it's not that it won't, it's not that you can't age it for another two or three or four years afterwards. It's just that it won't improve with age. And you really want to leave a bottle of non-vintage champagne sitting in your cellar for five years. It's meant to be enjoyed then. Uh, for people who are, say, going to a party, wanting to buy a gift, uh, what are some tips you would give them, particularly if they've never heard of the brand before? What what should they look for or what should they even ask to sort of say, is that a better quality or is it going to be more appealing or less appealing to me or to who I'm giving it to? It's a tricky question because it, it really depends on the person and the people that they're buying it for. You know, mm-hmm. if you know a lot about champagne or a lot about wine, you can go into a, a, a good wine store and completely nerd out with somebody who knows what they're talking about and end up with something that that would be very pleasing and potentially a new experience for them. Champagne's a little bit different though, in that it's really a very well-branded category. And you know, the houses that you worked with and that I still do, they have the biggest footprint in that category. And so Moet and Chandon is the biggest producer of champagne in the region. Vovclico is the biggest brand in the United States. So if you want something safe that you know is going to really good and really delicious and probably very well received, those types of brands, whether they're from our house or not, are a pretty safe bet. And you're assured a really good quality level as well because the mm-hmm. top houses produce great fizz and that's with, within and without of LVMH. Now, if you want something a little bit splashier, obviously you can go the route of trying to really whittle something unique and find a grower champagne for someone if you know them that well. If not, and you want something special, I don't know anybody who will go miss giving a bottle of Dom Perignon to someone. This is because it's recognition is amazing. Everybody recognizes the shield and the juice mm. is delicious. And then there's my favorite, which as you know, as you know, Seth is uh, Renart, mm-hmm. which is not well known here in the States, but is a very popular one in France. So I, I did a little research. I'm going to play um, Champagne Trivia. And I, I'm Uh-oh. pretty sure you're going to know most of the answers. I probably would have known none, but uh, I'm going to, uh, before I even get to you, uh, bring... Paula and Ciara into the mix and see if they can even get close, having not done the research that I did. So uh, a little bit unfair advantage here that I have over the two other colleagues. Okay, the first one for you ladies, and this is like, I'm going to start with a a real uh, lob here. 
largest champagne market in the world by far. Paula. France. Uh, you, you, you agree, Sarah? I was going to say France, but I'll go with uh, Spain. Uh, Polly, you got it. <laughs> it is uh, by far, it is like over 50% of the world market, which is saying a lot because France is, you know, not one of the top five in population. Interestingly, though, and maybe you know this, Seth, uh, per capita, it's not the largest. Do you know what it is? What 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 is per capita the largest consumer? Oh, that's interesting. I would say I would wager a guess that it would be the UK. Yeah, uh, UK was a top four. Um, and I guess it, it, this is a little bit of a trick question because it's a small population. Switzerland was number oh, one. That makes sense. And, and Belgium was number two, which is basically France. Um, all right, here's another one. This is really tough. <laughs> You're going to have to use your imagination. Ciara, how many bubbles do you think there are in a bottle? Wow. In a 500,000. Okay. Um, and uh, I'll ask you, Paula, you think she lowballed it or you think she overestimated? I think she overestimated it, but I have no idea how many. I think. <laughs> Any um, idea, Seth? Millions of bubbles. Millions. Yeah, 49 million. <laughs> In one bottle, in one 7,500 milliliter bottle. I can't believe it. Like that's that, I, I mean, was somebody counting? Um, I want to know that too. Like how did they get to that number? <laughs> I'm sure it was, it was a mathematical equation. Um, okay, here's, here, here's one. Uh, this is again, this could be an easy one for Seth, but uh, what do you think ladies, what has more carbonation, champagne or beer? Pella. I think champagne, but. I mean, that's what I will say naturally, but yeah. because you're asking, <laughs> maybe beer. Ciara, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's, your th what's your thought? The sentiment is the same. I would have said champagne off the bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You knew that, Seth. I did. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think it, yeah, three times more carbonation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all right, another one. Uh, uh, what has more pressure? air pressure, a bottle of champagne or a car tire? Ciara. I guess I'll go with tire. I will go for champagne. Seth, you want to you wanna dispel? Champagne. Champagne, it has, yeah, three times once again. So I guess the car is like more like the beer, the tire. Um, mm -hmm. Here's a funny one. The maximum velocity of a champagne cork that's popped. So how many miles per hour can it go up to? Paula? And this is not fair, you, you work in kilometers. <laughs> no, I know, but I, I'm doing the math. I will say 20. Okay. I'll, I'll go high, I'll say 80. Whoa, <laughs> do you know the answer, Seth? I think it's 60 if memory serves. All right. Well, yeah. Here's where I I, I, I gotcha. It's it's about 25, which oh, is still wow. pretty fast. That is yeah. pretty fast. You know, the, one of the things, one of the trivia things that didn't come up is um, how many eyeballs a year. Like I, I know from my <laughs> friends who are ophthalmologists and op, uh, opticians of like New Year's Eve is a big day, <laughs> or the New Year's Day, I guess, after the Eve, because it's a real issue. Um, okay. Related question: the longest recorded cork flight. How, how many feet you think it, it, it flew? 
Uh, That's kind uh, of a loaded question, though, because if I pop a cork off of the of a skyscraper, then it falls pretty far. That's know? true. <laughs> Let's just assume that you were standing on the ground and you went up how far you think order of magnitude it could go. At least there, um, this is probably in the Guinness Book of World Records. 100 feet would be my guess. Uh, yeah, you, you know what? You're you're in the neighborhood, 177. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of that's feet, right? Mm -hmm. um, all right, here here's a here's a pop culture one, I guess. Uh, although it, I'm I'm dating myself when I call it pop. Uh, James Bond, who who uh, in the course of all his uh, various appearances on the big screen, drank a lot of champagne. Uh, what was his favored brand of champagne? Do you know, Seth? You know, it depends on which James Bonds you're watching, because there were two. So, I, and I think I know both, but I'll let the ladies chime in on Okay, this. and this one, just for the record, was in 14 James Bond movies. Got this it. particular brand. Uh, Paula, you know? It, yeah, I know, but I read, I read about it. You read so, it? Okay, you did your research too. Ciara, you, 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 I think this is before your time. I was going to say, I'm not a big James Bond person, so I can't even put in a good guess. Okay. You know what? I would have, I was very stumped by this Bollinger's. Mm -hmm. I would, I, I would have thought it would be one of the more kind of traditional houses. I don't know. Maybe you'll tell me that is a traditional house. It's just not one of them that comes to mind for me. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is a fun one. Another history. Who, um, of, of famous people in history, who is the biggest champagne drinker on record? Any idea? Winston and, and I'll make it a little, little easier by saying 20th century history. So we're not going back to, you know, Louis the 14th. Gotcha. I would say Winston Churchill. Yeah, you are right. I'm not even going to make the ladies guess. Um, you were right. <laughs> in fact, between 1908 and 1965, he drank an estimated 42,000 bottles. Oh. Um, and every day, apparently at 11 a.m., he was served a glass. Do you know, Seth, what his brand of choice was? I do because it was, um, they named their prestige cuvee after him, uh, Bollinger, and they named their top champagne Sir Winston Churchill. In, yeah, interesting. I, who, who knew? I, th I would have thought he's like a Scotch guy. Um, another interesting one, um, champagne was also Queen Victoria's drink of choice. Uh, anyone know what brand she favored? I no. don't. Perrier no. Jouet, that was her brand. Uh. Um, you know, th this 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 was uh, interesting. You were talking before about riddling. Apparently, in, I was reading that in the 1800s, it was actually quite dangerous to handle the bottles because they'd explode. So this, I'm not going to ask you. I'm just going to sort of share this. So people would actually um, wear these, like they would be dressed in these metal enclosures, um, and and they would actually put they, like there was all these protections. It was actually a dangerous job to be working in a, a champagne making cave or whatever you'd call it. Most expensive bottle of champagne ever sold. Do you know, Seth? I, I have a pretty good guess. You, what are you gonna guess? And, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give you a little bit of a hint that when I read a bit more about the cost here, it wasn't just the, the, the liquid, it was, uh, in a bottle that was handcrafted with some solid gold and and actually a diamond at its center. So, what do you think, Paula? How much would you would you put? I would say two point five to three million. Ciara, you want to 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're in the neighborhood. It was actually close to 2.1 million. Um, and I don't know how much of that went to the making of the bottle. <laughs> and I, and, and actually, interestingly, um, it was designed by um, somebody I hadn't heard of, Alexander Amasu and Swarovski, partnered with Swarovski. Uh, and there was a very limited batch. So let's, let's get back to uh, the, the broader topic. A lot of people uh, preparing to celebrate the holidays, New Year's, Christmas. Um, what do you think food-wise, Seth, what goes well? What, 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 what do you think is a good holiday dish if we're gonna start with the champagne? Yeah, I, I try and keep it simple. Um, champagne loves salt and fat. So if you've got salty and or fatty foods, it's a beautiful, beautiful compliment. It can be as wide ranging as fried chicken to caviar, really. Um, mm. It's a very versatile wine. Rosé champagne, in my opinion, is even more versatile. A lot of people think that it's sweet. Uh, typically, it's not. You'll mm. the brute again on the front of the label. And it, that's got a little red wine in there, which is why they're pink. And so it has a little bit more weight to it. And you could have it with almost anything. You could have it with your ham, with your ham people. Um, the only thing that I'm, I'm careful with is um, sugar. So if it's a dry wine, don't pair it with sweet food because it's not going to mm. taste it. Mm. And the other thing, talking of pairing, um, and this is always a, a, another surprising learning for most people about what to serve champagne in. Um, you know, I kind of came into the company always assuming that a flute was the sure. appropriate stemware. Um, yeah. You and others quickly said, no, if it's a good bottle of champagne, that is not how you serve it. Talk, talk to us about that. Yeah, I want to preface that by saying that if you get pleasure out of drinking it in a coupe or a champagne flute or it gives you whatever, it gives you any joy at all, you should drink it how you like. But if you're going to spend the 40 to $400 on a bottle of champagne, um, it, you might want to try putting it in a white wine glass and mm -hmm. that, really getting your nose in there, smelling it, getting involved with the nuances that it has to offer. And the only way you're really going to be able to do that is in a wine glass that's opened up a little bit so you can actually smell it. Uh, champagne flute runs straight up in order to really showcase bubbles. Coupes are meant to, you kind of hold them in your hand, so it tends to warm up if you if you hold a coupe, which will change the flavor and also the effervescence of it. So I put it in a white wine glass when I'm at home. Hmm. And um, also you have a school, or you have a, a point of view on wine glasses that are stemless. That would not be your recommendation, right? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I lived in New York for a long time and, and I didn't have a lot of space, like a bunch of New Yorkers. And so having a white wine, you know, Chardonnay glass, a Riesling glass, a Cabernet glass, a Pinot glass, that just wasn't going to work out. I didn't have the cabinet mm -hmm. space for it. And so the, the ones that are stemless are really handy because they're a very good shape and they're you can fit a lot of them in your cabinet. The problem with them is that you hold them in your hand and if you hold them there long enough, it warms it up to the temperature of your body. Mm -hmm. And you don't drink any wine anywhere near 98.6 degrees. <laughs> so it'll change the flavor entirely. You want it much cooler than that, even if it's a, a red wine. But what you've also told me is you don't want it coming out of the freezer if it's a good bottle. Yeah, the opposite. And I think this is this is neglect. A lot of people will, and champagne in particular is guilty of this. You put it in an ice bucket and you leave it there for the rest of the night. And you're pouring that sixth glass. Um, and there's almost, you've knocked away a lot of the flavor and nuance of it because you've chilled it down too much. Mm. Tell people when they get bottles that they're not super fond of or that they don't think were very expensive or they're not sure about you really don't care and you're just serving it as party wine to a bunch of people who aren't going to be looking at it anyway, 
just chill it down, make it really mm-hmm. cold. And you'll, you'll take a lot of the, you'll take a lot of the sting out of that one. But <laughs> the inverse is that if you have really good wine and you drop the temperature, you take away the nuance, the flavor, the aromas and the complexity. So is the optimal temperature for a good champagne the same as the optimal te- temperature for a good Chardonnay or, or Pinot Grigio? You know, a lot of people disagree on this. Um, again, I think it's to taste to a certain degree. I wouldn't drink it a lot colder than a refrigerator is about 38 degrees. I think that's too cold. Mm. You'd let it warm up just, just, just a touch. Now we'll warm up in the glass. So some of that work will be done for you. But I think somewhere between 50 and 60 degrees for champagne is a sweet spot. Okay, good, good, good. Well, we're going to take a a quick break. We'll come back our final segment on all things champagne with connoisseur and expert Seth Box. So stay with us. This is Tastemakers on Sirius XM Stars. We now return to Tastemakers with Pauline Brown on Sirius XM Stars. Hello, welcome back to Tastemakers. I'm here this hour with my dear friend and my business partner, Paolo Oriel, and also our guest of the day, Seth Box. He is uh, an expert and wine educator at Moet Hennessy. We are talking about the wide world of champagne, something that Seth knows intimately well, as LVMH is um, one of the largest groups of champagne brands in the world. Uh, I believe it actually is the largest, actually, if you just looked at the champagne segment. So one question for you. you. You started this show by sharing that you kind of made your way into the industry uh, into the wine and spirits industry through an interest in food. When you think of the people that you come across, and there are many of them, who are the you know the most uh, discriminating connoisseurs, whether they're sommeliers or collectors, is there a correlation? Are there similar qualities between them and and say find the best chefs, um, Michelin ranked chefs, or the best? Um, even fragrance developers, like what, what do you see as, and what, what are some of the markers of, of individuals who go really, really far in wine and spirits? Talking from a production standpoint, because these are the people who are making it really, I would say the great chefs and great winemakers uh, and the noses, which are the people who put together the fragrances, they, they, they may very well have an ingrained skill set that might be better than some others, but I think most of it is passion and training mm-hmm. and a lot of work, um, a whole lot of work. Uh, mm. I don't know anybody who's a good winemaker who doesn't love food and isn't at least as involved in food. And the same with the people I know who really love food. Unless mm-hmm. they're out of, of drinking for any personal reasons or health reasons, every chef that I've ever met is pretty interested in wine, generally speaking, and usually mm-hmm. as a favorite. Because what they've done is they've, they've completely dived into um, into this world of sense and smell and taste. And it's temporal. Again, I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier, and I think that that appeals to different people. I think that that, that meal that's going to be gone all the time that goes into making the incredible meals that we've enjoyed, the fancy ones, the not fancy ones alike, and it's gone, right? It's that experience in time. And that's same with a bottle of wine. It could take 10 years to make, 10 seconds to drink, or maybe a little bit longer than 10 seconds, but it's, it's temporal, but the quality's there, the art's there, the craftsmanship is there, and it tends to draw people who are, who are driven by those things. Mm. In a lot of the industries uh, that might define themselves as luxury and built on the kind of exquisite craftsmanship and, uh, and discrimination that, say, fine champagne is, 
there it's an old population it's kind of a dying population right and in fact you know i mentioned one of the biggest consumers of, of champagne on record was Winston Churchill. That's like the image that comes to mind is this old European stodgy guy. Talk to me about what you see different among the next generation, among, you know, Pell and Ciara's peers and even younger, my kids. Are they enjoying it? And it, do you, are there different sort of techniques and, and trends to reach them versus uh, yeah. older ones? <laughs> That's a question that is literally the $60 million question. <laughs> Six billion dollar question because people and a lot a lot of the developed markets in the world so we'll just talk about the U.S. and Western Europe are drinking less and that has been a trajectory for decades now. It was not that long ago that the average consumption per day in in countries like Italy and France and Spain and Portugal was a liter per person per day. So that's a bottle plus it's a bottle and a third. And now you'll see people for health reasons stepping away from it. Um, moderation, lower alcoholism movement, how it's marketed and sold, I think is a really big deal. So we don't have the image of some old stuffy white guy and we need mm -hmm. to be relevant as a category. And there's, that's where our marketers come into play. That's where brands that are dusty need to get dusted off or else they won't evolve and they won't survive. Um, I think people are drinking the very best by people. I mean, all of humanity, this is the very best time to be drinking ever in history because the barriers to entry are so low. You can get a really good bottle of wine for 20 bucks. And if you are of a mind, you can spend $20,000 on a bottle. And, and there's a lot of space in between those as far as quality and, and how you want to approach your drink and your drinking styles. But yeah, it's, it's tricky. And I think that, I think how we communicate is the most relevant piece. Mm -hmm. Like I'll take something like Dom Perignon, which is super well-known, really popular, we still have to engage though. And we have to engage with a broad audience in order to make sure that we're continually relevant. And they've done a particularly good job at that because they appeal to younger people who go out and enjoy the night and it's really high energy. And we'll see these bottles with sparklers on them coming out. They've done a, a super job of engaging in a different way, um, but with, they haven't sold their soul. So you mm -hmm. can take that same bottle, remove the sparkler and go to, you know, a, a a collector's house and have them happy with what's in the bottle qualitatively speaking that's really hard to do um, and I, I don't think all brands do it well but it's something that everybody needs to approach very seriously because if we're if our newer audiences are are more careful drinking less and listening to a whole different set of people um, than the traditional I, I buy by Robert Parker or I buy by the wine spectator and that's how I do my purchasing that's not the case for the 20, 30 year olds these days. So mm -hmm. we have to evolve and we have to be very good at what we do. So my final question for you, um, we've piqued, I'm sure our listeners interest in the category um, and shared a lot of things they never knew. For those listeners who wanna continue to learn, who are interested in going deeper, um, maybe um, you know, following and what, what are the resources out there that you'd recommend? I mean, we're, we're, we're flooded with information, but we don't always know where the good information sits. You know, I was reading about this today. So since we spoke about this last, I said uh, Jancis Robinson is someone who I really like. Mm -hmm. A site called The Purple Pages, uh, mm -hmm. which was recently acquired, but she is still actively writing uh, mm -hmm. for that. And I think she's just brilliant. She's written, she's a, she's a professional writer. She's also one of the very first women to earn a master of wine degree, which is really hard. 
there, I think the statistic there, more people have landed on the moon than have passed that examination. <laughs> she was the first woman to do it. Um, I also was reading today, Hugh Johnson. He hmm. is also one of these just prolific writers of amazing wine books. And he does little pocket editions and everybody has something digital. So you don't have to drag around a 40 pound book. Um, hmm. they're, they're both excellent sources. Mm. And for people who want to uh, learn more about the Moet Hennessy uh, portfolio, where can they go? Yeah, just go to moethennessy.com mm-hmm. or go to LVMH, uh, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, and all the brands there. And they have it nicely divided by categories. So just go to Wines and Spirits, and, and there's more information there than you could possibly hope to read in one afternoon. And uh, Seth, you were also very generous in coming to one of our own tastemaker events at Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, which is something that uh, Paula uh, runs and um, and has a sort of an archive of some great speakers and, and, and experts in very uh, uh, interesting and different areas. So Paula, for people who want to um, you know learn more about about the labs and maybe even have exposure to speakers like Seth down the road, where can they go? Of course, so you can go to aestheticintelligencelabs.com and we are actually starting our new cohort in January. And so this will be, this is a, uh, a three-month program to boost your aesthetic intelligence. Uh, and obviously we, uh, we, we can look to Seth as a, as a great example of somebody with elevated aesthetic intelligence, especially when it comes to these flavors and fragrances. So thank you, thank you, uh, Seth, as always. Uh, for participating and for sharing your wealth of knowledge and your inspiration. My pleasure. It's always fun to to see you and to talk to you. And it was lovely meeting the rest of your extended crew. Felt like a flower. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, Paula, for, uh, for being my partner here. And uh, to Ciara Kaiser, our producer. Unfortunately, she always keeps us in time or else I'd keep going because I have many, many more questions to ask. We'll have to have you back on the show, Seth. And uh, our great sound engineer, you didn't get to hear his voice this time, but Mark Afflelo is usually our baritone, our, <laughs> our, uh, our guest baritone on the show. So, uh, so and, and happy new year to all our listeners out there. We are going to come back with a newly minted Tastemakers in the New Year. More on that in January. Uh, so, and, and thanks for all your support throughout this last year. I'll look forward to continuing on this journey in 2022. Cheers.